It's a joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Josh, and today we're going to be in Romans chapter 13 in verses 8 to 14, continuing uh, this series that we've been in for some time through the book of Romans. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about when I was eight years old. I had the opportunity to try out for the all-star team for my coach pitch league. And this was a pretty big deal. Because this team fed into the all-star teams and travel ball teams when, you know, we actually got to throw the ball. It wasn't coach pitch anymore. And that was a big deal because that fed into middle school baseball and high school baseball so that I could eventually naturally become a professional pitcher for the Yankees. I worked hard all season. I arrived to practice early and I left late. I had my dad do drills with me at home. And after a solid tryout, I wasn't selected for the team. And I was devastated really wrecked. I sat in silence the whole way home. And when we got home, I went straight to the backyard. And I took a throwback frame. It's this thing that you can throw the ball into and it sends back a ground ball or a fly ball. And I practiced my fielding skills with tears just streaming down my face. After about an hour, my dad came to the backyard and told me to pack it up that we needed to go for a walk. So begrudgingly, I did what he asked, and we walked around our neighborhood. My dad told me two things that were true that day. First, that what no, ma- no matter what happened in my life, no matter the disappointment that I felt in myself or disappointment that others had in me, that would not shake the love that he and my mom had for me. And the second that anything in life that's worth having will be hard to get, and that the pursuit of it itself is a type of reward. And it was in that moment, what my dad did for me, telling me of his love, despite my disappointment and shortcoming, it did something in me, something to me. That conversation laid the foundation for a young boy to learn that despite shortcomings and failures, God's love for us in Christ does not give up. It cannot be held back. Indeed, in Christ Jesus, we come to know the love and friendship of a caring and gentle father. Please don't miss this. What my dad did for me also did something in me. And this is what we will see in our text today. We'll see that Paul wrote Romans 13, 8 to 14 to demonstrate that Christ's work for us produces a work in us, that he works to completion unto glory. Christ's work for us produces a work in us that he works to completion Unto glory. Or to consider it another way, God's fulfillment of the law in Christ powers and propels our fulfillment of the law in the present and aims our actions and affections toward the law's end love. 
Paul supports this argument by calling the church in verses 8 to 10 to fulfill the law in love. That is, God's love for us in Christ does something in us. It acquaints us with love himself that we might fulfill the law. Then, in verses 11 to 14, Paul continues his argument, urging the church to walk in the light for love. Here we will see what the fulfillment of the law has always been about, that it's been heading toward an end, that in the conduct of the saints, clothed in Christ himself, darkness would be overtaken by light and salvation come ever nearer. So as we set out on this work today, let us pray and ask God for help. Father, we declare that there is victory in the name of your Son, Jesus. Victory over sin and darkness and death. Victory over the brokenness of this world. Victory for the weary saint suffering in sin. God, I pray that your word today would come and that hope would wreck our hearts. That you would not let go of us today, but having held on to us, God, that we would feel your nearness and be renewed in hope that we would love. So God, we plead for your spirit to come and to do a work that is victorious in this place today. God, push away sin and death. Keep darkness at bay in this place today and let light shine forth by the glory of your gospel accomplished in your son, Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So even as we find ourselves today in Romans chapter 13, we can't forget where we have come from and make sense of today's text. You see, like the little accelerator on a Hot Wheels track, today's text takes the momentum from where we have been in the text and propels it forward to the next section of the track. If you remember, in chapters 1 to 11, Paul has labored to demonstrate the beauty and power of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. And I'm going to say a whole word here, so hold on. In chapter 1, it is the gospel that isn't just good news, it's the very power of God. In chapter 2 and 3, we see that apart from Jesus, there is only bad news. There is no hope for Jew and Gentile alike apart from God's saving work in Jesus. In chapters 4 and 5, we find that faith has always been the means for our justification before God. And it is in Christ alone that we are justified. Friends, God made a way in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of His Son. Don't miss this. God did not spare His own Son to undo all of the sin and death that was done in Adam to make a way for salvation for us. So that in chapter 6, we find that being made righteous and holy and acceptable to God in Christ, this not only reconciles us to Him, but it frees us from bondage to sin. Jesus' power is actually definitively at work in breaking sin down. 
in order that, as we find in chapter 7, we would actually be married to Christ himself. And though the struggle against sin has not ended on this side of glory, we have in the bridegroom real hope that we need not return to sin's chains. In chapter 8, it is God's own spirit that declares assurance that we are indeed children of the Father and that in this, nothing, nothing, not one single thing can separate us from the love that He has for us in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 9 and 10, we find that as His children, we are heirs to every single one of His promises by virtue of our faith in His work alone. We need only confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and church, He saves us. And chapter 11 leaves us in awe. Through twists and turns, through victory and defeat in human history, God has kept for Himself a people. He has remained mighty to save through our rebellion and slander through our mutiny and blasphemy, even in our own unbelief, God has kept His eye fixed on those who He has declared to be His children in Christ Jesus. And we cannot leave this behind because it is, this is the reason that the work that God has done for us, this is what brings us to chapter 12 and 13. Where any of this is possible. Paul exhorts us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to him because of what God has done for us in Christ. God's work for us produces a work in us. Loved one's love. So this sacrifice that we are called to because of what God has done for us in Christ. It produces in us love. And what does that love look like? We see in chapter 12 that that love is genuine. That it loves each other with a brotherly affection, working to outdo the other in honor. It contributes to the needs of the saints and seeks to show hospitality. It blesses those who persecute you and doesn't curse them. It doesn't repay evil for evil. It never avenges itself. It sees the hungry enemy and it feeds them and gives them a drink so that we are not overcome by evil, but we live lives of love that overcome evil with good. We see in verses 9, 10, 13, 14, 17, 19, 20, and 21, the radical love of a loved one. Our love can be genuine only because we have come to know in Christ love himself. And chapter 13 is not a departure from this endeavor of love. Even in paying taxes, as we saw in last week's text, Paul calls the follower of Jesus to love. God's work for us in His Son produces a work in us, which brings us to today's text. So if you're not already there, turn with me to Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, Owe no one anything 
except to love each other. For the one who is loved, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul uses the idea of obligation to transition from his counsel of love toward governing authorities, as we saw in last week's text, verses 1 to 7, to his exhortation to love of neighbor in verses 8 through 10 today. In verse 7, the follower of Jesus is to pay back what you owe to everyone. But this theme is turned on its head in verse 8 as we find that in the gospel, we cannot ever repay the debt of love. The focus at the outset of this passage is not whether or one should hold debts, but rather what obligations are created by the gospel. Look at the text. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Here we see the gospel both creating and satisfying a debt of love. Stay with me here. The gospel work God has done for us creates a work in us. In Romans 1, Paul declares himself to be under obligation, literally a debtor to both Greeks and barbarians. To the wise and the foolish in verse 14. And Paul's obligation to the whole world originates in Christ. In whom he received grace to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of Christ's name among all the nations in verse 5. This debt that he owes to Greek and barbarian alike originates in the gospel. And Paul's payment toward this debt in chapter 1 is the gospel itself. We see in verse 15 that Paul is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Indeed, Paul, as we see in the following verse, is not ashamed of the gospel. For it is, as we have seen, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul's payment toward his debt of love that is created by the gospel comes in the form of the gospel itself. Paul's payment toward his debt of love that is created by the gospel, comes in the form of the gospel itself. Do you see this from the text? Paul is indebted to Greeks and barbarians because of the grace of God in Christ. And that immediately produces a gospel response, a payment of love in the form of the proclamation of the gospel itself. The work that God has accomplished for us in Christ produces a work in us, a work of love. So the debt comes because Christ has done everything for us when we did not deserve it any more than the world deserves our love. In the gospel, God crushes his own son to secure for us freely the forgiveness of sin, the defeat of death, the canceling of guilt and shame, and guarantees for us everlasting joy in Him. All of this while we were still His enemies. It is in this that we become debtors to all men. But this still raises the question, why are we debtors to all men? Aren't we debtors to Christ? 
This is crucial. This is what makes our gospel love genuine. Christ cannot and would not be paid back by us. He cannot be paid back by us because our debt is too great. And we have no means to pay that debt. And he would not be paid back even if it were somehow possible. Because then grace would cease to be grace. And the gospel itself would be null. Grace that is not free is not grace. So then why do we love? Because God's work for us in Christ produces a work in us. We could do no other. Loved ones love. So the gospel itself creates and satisfies an obligation of love. One that cannot be perfectly fulfilled by us on this side of glory. As Origen wrote, Let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love. A debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in settling. Do you feel the tension in all of this? The text is creating a tension that we are meant to feel. The gospel creates an obligation of love. It satisfies the obligation of love in that the gospel itself in love is payment toward the debt. But the debt is expected by the text in verse 8 to remain open in the here and now. So again, why is it that we love? Because love fulfills the law. Look back at the text in verse 8. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is important for Paul as he is writing to an audience of both Jews and Gentiles who are wrestling with the implications of new life in Jesus. The temptation for the Jew in coming to Christ was to hold to a strict legalism which loses the heart of the law, love. The temptation for the Gentile in coming to Christ was to minimize the law at the expense of genuine love because love fulfills the law. So Paul is intentional in not divorcing the law from Christ's work, but rather is seeking to interpret the law in Christ. Look back at the text with me in verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul now supports his contention that loving others fulfills the law by arguing that the commandments of the law are summed up in this word found in Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul cites as illustrations of the commandment that he has in mind abbreviated references to four commandments from the Decalogue. His addition and any other commandment expands the impact of love of neighbor to the whole of the law, extending its reach to every commandment that pertains to how we are to treat another who is created in the image of God. And this is crucial to Paul's task in casting a vision of radical love for both Jews and Gentiles who have claimed the way of Christ. For the Jew, the Ten Commandments primarily, 
and the rest of the law secondarily are not to be about mere legal adherence, but rather about real and genuine love of neighbor. And for the Gentile, attracted by the broader moral appeal of the law, there is assurance in this text that so far as the gospel is concerned, any other commandments involved in Christianity come to their focus in the loved command. Just as, the do, just as do the four cited from the Decalogue. So for Jew and Gentile alike in Christ, Paul is arguing that the law is fulfilled in love. And while various Jewish authors refer to this commandment of love of neighbor in Leviticus 19.18, in their practice of faith, it was given no special prominence. This verse wasn't a big deal. This commandment wasn't something that everybody just had thrown in their face all the time. Paul's argument here then is an extension of Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 22, where he pairs this command, Leviticus 19.18, with Deuteronomy 6.5 as the commandments on which all the law and prophets hang. Paul undoubtedly also follows Jesus' interpretation of neighbor as outlined in Luke 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan to mean other persons generally and not to fellow Jews alone. And to emphasize his Christological interpretation of the law, Paul writes that it is the law that is summed up in a word. This isn't just another commandment that Paul is giving us in verse 9. Paul refers to Leviticus 19.18 not as a command, but as a word. We cannot miss the importance of what Paul is doing in using logos, translated here as word, instead of commandment. Logos, used here in Romans 13, is the same word choice used by, by John in John 1, where the logos, the word, Christ himself is both life and light, Love in a word made flesh. So what is Paul getting at? Here in verse 9, as elsewhere in Romans, this logos signifies an effective utterance of God which brings its own fulfillment. And we see this all through Romans chapter 9. What God has done for us in the word made flesh brings its own fulfillment. It produces a work in us, a work of love, that fulfills the law. Remember, God's fulfillment of the law in Christ powers and propels our fulfillment of the law in the present and aims our actions and affections at the law's end, which is love. This is why Paul follows this declaration in verse 10 by taking up again the language of verse 8. He wants to push what he said in 8 and 9 forward. Look back at the text. Paul writes in verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. As in Galatians 5, Paul here envisions a fulfilling, a meeting of the law's demands in an active sense. It is love in action which brings fulfillment to the law. But Paul isn't doing something much more than this alone in the text. As in Galatians, Paul is demonstrating the function of the law is not to separate Jew from Gentile. 
but rather he is bringing to an eschatological end the entirety of the law in the love command. Paul is countering traditional Jewish thought, which meant bringing mankind nigh to the law, or is bringing all persons within the bounds of Judaism itself. But the law interpreted in Christ destroys the restrictiveness of this line of thought within Judaism and propels the law toward its end by inviting the nations into the true Israel, into Christ himself. The apostle understands love in verse 10 as a present reality. Here he speaks not of the one who loves, but rather of love itself at work. Love itself in action in us. The commandments to love your neighbor is a word that has become reality in Jesus Christ. Paul's claim that all the commandments are summed up in this word is therefore not merely a theological judgment that asserts the priority of love toward our neighbor. No, the word is doing something more. This summing up isn't just effective. It isn't just doing something. It's taking us to the end. It's eschatological. Love now has come in a word made flesh to reality. Church, love is here. In Christ, it is love that we know. It is love that transforms us. It is love that propels us forward. Love that sustains us. It is love that fulfills the law. When you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. This is why the apostle exhorts us That indeed we can never go wrong when our aim is love. And this word of love made flesh and at work in us is light and life. And as we see in John 1, the darkness cannot overtake it. And yet the darkness feels so near. And all of this exhortation toward love of neighbor seems impossible. God's power seems weak in the face of senseless shootings. Rampages in our own community this week. Which have left five dead and many others injured. And has left us with love that feels feeble. The darkness feels insurmountable at times as the nations rage, as wars tear on. It seems that light cannot break into our political divisions which cast brother against brother and sister against sister. In all our political posturing and shouting, love itself seems to be drowned out, smothered by hatred and pride. The darkness feels too heavy too burdensome, too strong to carry on the work of love. Church, I feel this and I know that you do too. But God does not leave us alone in the darkness in the work of love. Look back with me at the text in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly 
as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Christ Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As we move into verse 11, it seems that Paul is turning to a new topic. But as we look at the Greek carefully, what we find is Paul is continuing his thought from the previous section, using an elliptical with an imperative that's to be supplied by us so that the text reads, and do this knowing the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul is not eager to move on from the argument that he began in 12.1, but rather seeks to place all of Christian ethics, and indeed all of chapter 12, verse 1 through 13.10, within this eschatological context. The fulfillment of the law in love is going somewhere. It is headed to the finish line. Paul here adds three statements to explain what he means by the time in verse 11. His first and third assertions share the metaphor of night giving way to day. It is already the hour for you to rise up from sleep. The night is far along. The day is drawing near as we see in verses 11 and 12. In a society governed by the sun, these folks rose early at dawn. Only slackers would keep in their beds after the first glow of day. Early rising was especially necessary in the Near East, where the bulk of the work needed to be completed before the heat of the midday sun arrived. Paul's insistence that the hour to awake has arrived meets the weary believer who longs to leave love in the light of the dawning day and return to the darkness of slumber in this present age. Paul is inviting us into the warmth of the dawning day for love. Don't miss this. Paul is drawing on an Old Testament theme from within Judaism and placing its realization in Christ himself. The time that is upon us is the day of the Lord, the final fulfillment of God's rule and reign in the cosmos. For Paul, the day that is dawning, the light that is beckoning us to awake is the imminence of Christ's return and the completion of God's work inaugurated in Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The night then is this present evil age. To awake, to rise from sleep is to reject absorption into the darkness of the night age. No, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Indeed, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Church, love is at hand. And Paul continues in verse 12, providing a pair of imperatives to build on the imminence of Christ's return. Look at the text. So then let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul invites the church to adorn a new wardrobe for the dawning day. And in so doing, to cast off darkness and to put on the armor of light, Christ himself. The darkness of night 
as the time when those bent on evil and mischief are particularly active becomes an image in the text for the evil realm. This present age which rages against the dawning of the day. It is this dark reality that Christ himself supplants in love at Calvary. And Paul is not merely cautioning us against conforming to this age. He is calling on us to don the armor, literally the weapons of light. Weapons appropriate for those who have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and have been qualified in Christ Jesus to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. As we see in Colossians 1. Don't you see? Christ has not left us in the darkness, but invites us into the light for love. He calls us to put on the weapons of light, to clothe ourselves in Christ himself, to not just defend against the realm of darkness in the present age, but to use those weapons to extend the light for love. Christ is not far off in this endeavor. Though the darkness feels real, he does not abandon us in the task of love. He is as close as the clothes you wear. Paul now turns in verse 13 to a second set of contrasted commands to reinforce the eschatological nature of our Christian love. Look back at the text. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Our manner of life in light of the time, is to be decent or proper, as though we're walking in the daytime. Walking in the light is love. And in the text, there is this tension between the day being at hand, or not yet here, as in verse 12, and our walk taking place in the daytime, or as those who are already in the light of day, as in verse 13. And we feel this tension every day. It expresses the already and not yet weight. The reality of our life in Christ. That is in Christ followers of the way eagerly wait for the coming of the day. Even as we experience by faith the power and blessings of that day in the present. In contrast to the proper conduct that we are to exhibit. Paul lists three pairs of sins that we are to avoid. The first two pairs allude to conduct of the night. Excessive drinking, sexual promiscuity, and some sexual misbehavior. The final pair, strife and jealousy, at first glance don't seem to fit with the metaphor of darkness. But in consideration of where we're going, the next two chapters... It is clear that Paul is rebuking a kind of present age darkness he sees as a threat to the church's witness of love in unity. And each of these admonitions are connected to the prohibitions from the law that Paul has laid out in verse 9. If the law is fulfilled in love, then we are to walk in the light for love. Jackie Hill Perry has been so helpful for me here. She writes, if you look closely at the second set of commands from the Ten Commandments, 
In them you'll discover more of what God is like. What he commands of Israel there is what he is in himself. Love is not God, but God is love. And so being, he is active in how he gives it away. Murder, theft, adultery, dishonesty, and covetousness are not a set of behaviors and heart postures that exist in God. Not merely because he is love, but because he is holy. Holiness is what makes real love possible. Without it, love is purely sentimental, easily misplaced, and unconditionally conditional. We walk as though it is day, not in darkness, not in orgies, or drunkenness, or sexual immorality, or sensuality, or quarreling, or jealousy, because in Christ, God has made us his own. In Christ, God has extended his own holiness to us, and now as sons and daughters of the Father, we are called for love into lives absent of darkness. The light of God's own holiness, the power of his own love dispels the darkness within and beckons us to walk as children of the light of day. And Paul powerfully brings this point to a head in verse 14. Look back with me in the text. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. We are in light of the time to put on Christ himself. The call is a continuation of Paul's argument. That salvation is conformity to the image of Christ himself. The last Adam. So for Paul becoming conformed to Christ lies within the tension of the believer's responsibility of a determined cooperation with the outworking of grace and divine enabling. And what God is doing, what God does in accomplishing the putting on. Packed into Paul's use of putting on here is this Old Testament sense of endowment and empowering of the Spirit. We see this in Judges and in First and Second Chronicles, really, really clearly. So the call, Paul's call, to make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires, is one in which we participate. But it's one that is empowered and enabled by God in his word for us in Christ. Indeed, Christ's work for us produces a work in us that he works to completion. Unto glory. And when I think about this text. And what it might look like. In the Harry Potter movies. Kind of toward the end of the series. In the Half-Blood Prince. One of the main characters. Albus Dumbledore has died. And it's tragic. And terrible. 
And even though the night was already dark, in his death, the darkness becomes darker. It's heavier still. And wrecked by grief and overcome with loss, despite the darkness creeping in, those who are gathered around his body raise their wands one by one to send beads of light up into the air. And at first, it looks like nothing significant at all. But one by one, these beads of light collectively grow to push back the clouds, to pierce the darkness, to give a glimpse of the dawning day. It's love that does this in the movie. It is this tangible work taken on by this group of people united around a cause for love that breaks the darkness. And this is a call that we see in the text today. We are to fulfill the law in love by walking in the light. And we can do this because God has worked for us in Christ by His Spirit to produce a work of love in us that is strong to sustain us to the end. It is a work that the darkness cannot overtake. Indeed, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We have been loved. So we can do no other. We love. Let's pray. God, I pray that the gospel, the reality of what you have accomplished for us in Jesus would land heavy on our hearts now. the gospel would lift us up in hope. That the gospel would push us forward in love. God, you have not left us alone in this task. You have given us your own spirit to work in us a work of love. So God, my prayer is that we would not grow weary in love. We would not grow tired of it. But God, we would joyfully seek out every opportunity to fulfill the obligation of love that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, work a work of transformation in us today. Conform us to the image of your Son. Empower us to put on Christ. Amen.